Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. That's what Kawhi Leonard heard at the home opener for the team that he chose to go to. Do you think he realized when he signed with the Clippers that on opening night they'd be playing the Lakers and he'd get booed? Do you think he thought of it when he was asked to address the crowd and got booed again? Do you think he's going through the game saying, you know what? It's like a road game. I'm on the wrong team. I should be with LeBron and AD. Well, the Clippers have a way better team. He's in a way better situation, but he knows very well that the Clippers are and will always be the ugly stepchild to the Los Angeles Lakers. It is a Lakers town hard stop. I was watching NBA last night, but in addition, the number one thing that I was watching last night, the number one, of course, is the World Series. Game one of the World Series, great pitching matchup, Garrett Cole against Justin Verlander. And I'm thinking to myself, obviously, back when I was in the World Series in 2003, what was I doing pregame? What's going on in the craziness behind the scenes? That's where my head was. I'm not really watching the warm-up. I'm not watching Cole warm up in the bullpen or, or at all, or the players in the batting cage. I'm running around like crazy. And I was thinking that Houston had such front office distractions last night before the game. Oi is all I can say. For starters, you had an owner, Jim Crane, who was dealing with statements that he was releasing. We talked about him yesterday. He's got the commissioner in town. He's got to deal with all of his partners, not only in the team, but also his corporate partners. Then he's keeping track of the umpires. Believe it or not, the umpires get met with before the game. You've got Joe Torre in town, who is in charge of on-field ground rules, on-field discipline, the umpires, all things that are going on. But as a team president and as a team owner and as the president of baseball operations, you have to deal with all of these things. Then there's appearances you have to make. I actually got a list before a game. Hey, here's who's at the game. Here's where they are. Here's the sweet number. You have to stop in. Home games were always the most stressful in the postseason because you feel like a host. And you know very well when you're a host, that it's not as fun as being a guest. It's why I couldn't wait to get to Yankee Stadium, and I'm sure that the Astros brass can't wait to get to Nationals Park. I think I'm sure they will be far more careful who they are photographed with, but I can tell you that being on the road is far better than being at home. So then you finally get down to watching the game if you have an opportunity to, and as a fan, you're simply watching the game unfold, and you're not really thinking five or six steps ahead, But in the front office, that's our job. We actually play the game. It's funny with all the simulations that happen now that 66% of the time there's going to be this team winning and 33% that that team is going to win. We never thought about simulations. We really didn't. It's not like when professional athletes claim that they actually don't know that there's a line on the game they're playing in, right? It's not like that at all. This is really, we didn't think about the simulations. We knew whether we were favorites or underdogs and that's it. 
So we're going through the game and we're deciding when pitchers are going to pitch. We're deciding a batting order, who's the first bat off the bench, when that pinch hitter may appear. We're thinking of all sorts of possibilities that can happen during a game. And the one thing that you don't think about, but you have to, but I wasn't thinking about because I was a fan last night for the first few innings, is Garrett Cole's not going to give up five runs. There's no way. And Scherzer's not going to have 112 pitches after five innings. There's no way. Back in the day when I had to think about those things, I did. And there's always a contingency plan. And the Nationals did it. They had Scherzer only go five innings. They slated him to go seven. The ideal is really what Houston did, where Cole went seven, except he gave up the five runs. But you have Scherzer go seven, then go to Hudson Doolittle or Doolittle Hudson. It depends where you are in the batting order. What we saw last night was a problem for the Nationals long term. You saw that when they go to anyone other than Corbin, who's supposed to be a starter in game three, who now probably won't, but they have Annabelle Sanchez for that. Then you have Doolittle and Hudson. They tried to go Rainey, gave up the home run, almost gave up the lead, only got an out. So the last eight outs had to be from a combination of Hudson and Doolittle. That's not sustainable over a seven-game series, especially in a 2-3-2 scenario. You don't know how it's going to actually play out, but you are prepared for everything. That's why when we're watching a game and we say, oh my God, I can't believe that happened, I don't think in 18 years anything happened where I would look and say, I can't believe that happened in terms of planning for the game. Certainly they're on-field events. You don't plan for a no-hitter. You just don't need to go into your bullpen contingency. You don't plan for a player to hit for the cycle, which I never saw. No Marlins players ever hit for the cycle. But in terms of things that surprise announcers or fans, I can't believe they're not pinch-hitting for blank. Alvarez, he's in the lineup. Why? He went one for... 20, one for 25 in the LCS. Well, we know very well why Alvarez is in the lineup because we're making the lineup. So I just think about all of these things that these teams have to worry about, and then you let the game play out. But what you don't expect to happen is something that took place last night that is com you can't plan for, you can't simulate, and it is inexcusable. And then there was a double down. George Springer, who has set a record for home runs in the World Series, five in a row, four from the 2017 World Series and game one. He hit his home run. Eighth inning comes, fly ball. He watches it. He does what Acuna did, and we took Acuna out to task, out to the barn, said he should bench him, said it was an outrage. Freddie Freeman commented on it. You had the manager the, the GM, the president, everybody's talking about Acuna. Lazy. How could he do that in the division series, which they ended up losing? Springer, on the other hand, does the exact same thing. Where's the outrage? I'm screaming at the TV. He should be on third base there because Altuve drives him in with a sacrifice fly. But the media does its job. They go to Springer after the game, and this was his explanation? Oh, because I... I... I can't cut a third right there because uh, the guy on second had gone back to tag. Um, if I had gone a third, I'm out. I'm out for sure. I wasn't watching him the whole time. You know, that, that's that's kind of one of those things where I, I don't want to um, necessarily r run as fast as I can because for some reason, if he tags or, or, or whatever the case and, and, and I run by him, it's it's uh, it's not good. So I just kind of watching the outfielder. Um, I mean, he, he made it incredible bid on it um and you know i'm kind of 
lucky right there, and but it doesn't really matter. I mean, that they won the game, and we'll move on. To it doesn't really matter, George. Hey, George, it does really matter because you could have scored the tying run, and you got lucky. You purposefully were only looking at the outfielder, but then you said that you you saw that Tucker on second could have been tagging. You weren't looking at him. You were only looking at the outfield, and you were strutting as though the ball was a home run. How come you're skipping and strutting, and then when the ball is not caught by Eaton, you are running as fast as you can? Uh, what you said does not follow from what you did, and we've got video of it. We can see your eyes following the ball, and then we can hear your voice explaining what you did. I'm not letting you off the hook, and the reason I'm never going to let you off the hook is for the Astros to be who the Astros are. They've already screwed it up off the field. We know exactly what the reputation is in the front office. We know exactly what they are and what they do. We give them credit for being smart, but we don't give them credit for their behavior. But on the field, you have an opportunity to not make the type of mental mistakes that cost you an opportunity to win a ring. You run that play out, and you're responsible for running that play out. If it's a home run, you run. Don't tell me you're going to catch and pass the runner, and you would have been out. If one of my players ever said that, I never had a player say that, because you can't purposely pass one of your players. You have to literally pass them. You just slow down. I've seen runners score one step behind each other. That makes perfect sense. But don't give me a bunch of double talk when you know you're wrong. Stand up like a man. This organization needs more A.J. Hinches, who stood up like a man last night before the game amidst all the off-field distractions. Stand up like a man, George, and say, listen, I'm not that player, because you're not, George. I don't want to be that player, because you should never be that player, George. I should have run as fast as I could, and I didn't, and that could have cost my team the game. Because you know why? Your teammates are listening. They all pretend they're not. They pretend they don't watch clips. They pretend they're not paying attention to what their teammates say in the media. Guess what? Every teammate hangs on every word. They know everything that's said. So next time this happens, for anybody out there, go and run. You have an opportunity to win a World Series game. I just, I have a hard time getting through what George Springer did, but I did, and I ended up spending the rest of the night watching other sports. But I found an article, uh, there was some breaking news yesterday, which I heard and, and I thought it was interesting news. Uh, but what happened after was way more interesting. We have another example of a man running a team, and we've spoken about him on this very show. It's my favorite target, John Elway. That makes me sound like a quarterback. John Elway is my favorite target. I'm not a quarterback, but you know when you become my target? When you talk like this. He made a trade yesterday, they call him the general manager, for receiver, he traded receiver Emmanuel Sanders. This was his quote. When we looked at it, Emmanuel had issues, and we had issues. You think he means anxiety? Depression? Those are serious issues that require attention. They're nothing to be ashamed of. Those are issues. Not sure what he meant. That is why it was a good time for us to go in a different direction. These must be new issues because 11 days ago, quote, John Elway, we have no players on the trading block. Issues have come up. It's a good time to go in a different direction and for us to go in a different direction. But with that being said, we were able to get the value we thought was fair. That's why we decided to make the deal. No, that's not true, John. 
You decided to make the deal because Emmanuel Sanders walked into your office and demanded a trade. Just come out and say it. It's another example of misleading the fans. I don't know why you're doing it. Hey, we don't want a guy on our team who doesn't want to play for us, which I totally disagree with. Hey, Emmanuel Sanders, we're not giving him the touches he wants. Okay, but you're going to tell us that no one's on the block and then all of a sudden someone is. I get it. I traded players for 18 years, but there's something I never said. Here's the line. No one's on the trading block. No, I never said that. What I always said is everyone is apt to be traded. Some are more likely to be traded than others. Go back. That's the line we and I used every time, 18 years. Some players are more likely to be traded than others. Never speak in absolutes because you don't know what the offer is. Now, the offer for Sanders I found to be fascinating because that's an offer they couldn't refuse. They got the 49ers third and fourth round selections in 2020. Oh my God, I'm, I'm shivering with excitement that the Broncos are going to turn around three straight years of five and 11, six and 10, and they're two and five this year because they got the 49ers third and fourth round picks in 2020. For all of you Denver Bronco fans out there, you are in very good hands with John Elway because no one's on the trading block, but there are issues, but they're dealing with those issues by trading a player just because he asked. Speaking of a team who doesn't ask its players anything, nor should it, uh, the Chicago Cubs made a move today when they hired David Ross to be manager. I found that to be curious because I don't understand why it's breaking news. The reason it's not breaking news is David Ross was scheduled to be hired, I'd say in September, as Theo Epstein, who is the president of baseball ops for the Chicago Cubs, GM Jed Hoyer, owner, the Ricketts family. Once they realized they weren't gonna make the playoffs, which happened well before they were eliminated, they were living in La La Land, great movie. We're not reviewing that today. They were singing the song on the 405, I can tell you that, thinking that they had a chance at the playoffs this year, the way they played, total inconsistency, fighting between Theo and Joe Madden. There is radio sound of Theo putting Joe Madden out to pasture while the season was going on, which players listen to and hear. So they know they're thinking about having a managerial list. This is going on during the season. They don't fire Joe Madden and not renew him and then start a list. That's not how it happens. You actually have a list ready to go. And what you do is you coordinate with the commissioner's office, who's on that list, you submit that list to them, and you're totally fine. And so that is all the Cubs did. They submitted a list. It has to include minorities. Why? That's the rule. The Rooney rule in NFL it's called the Selig Rule in baseball, Bud's, after Commissioner Bud Selig, in an effort to increase and improve diversity amongst managerial candidates. So what happens is, no matter who you are hiring, unless it is a minority, you have to have a list. If it's a minority candidate, which we had when we replaced Joe Girardi with Freddie Gonzalez, we simply told Major League Baseball, we're hiring Freddie Gonzalez, they said, great, proceed. But if you're hiring David Ross, you are not given that luxury, you have to go through a process. My issue with that is that it is A, misleading to your fan base, B, it's insulting to the people that you are interviewing when they have no shot for the job. And if you ask individuals who are interviewed who don't have a shot for the job only to fit and fill a quota, they're not happy about it, they don't wanna do it. 
Willie Randolph is famous for turning down interviews because he was always a minority candidate who was interviewed to fill a quota. He got his managerial shot, it didn't work out for him, and then he chose to stop interviewing. I don't, I do not know if that same fate awaits Joey Espada, who was a coach of mine in Miami, but what I do know is that he never had a chance at the Cubs job. Not one chance. Now the Cubs are gonna come out and say it was super close. What a great interview we had. We spent eight hours with Joe Girardi. Eyewash. Complete. We brought in Joey Espada. He, he is a candidate on the rise. Eyewash. Period. All I want is transparency. Just come out and say, we're hiring David Ross. That's who we want to hire. That's our right to do. But jumping through hoops, it makes everyone look bad. And then you lie on top of that when you announce him and say, we had no idea who we were going to hire. We put a list together. And coincidentally, we came up with David Ross. That's not how it works. Now, there are situations where you've got a managerial choice where you actually do have candidates and you don't know who you're going to hire. I want to tell you, we at one point interviewed, before we hired Mike Redmond, we interviewed Brian Price, Larry Boa, Mike Redmond, and there were six of us who engaged in interviews. Not one of the interviews was eight hours. It's not because we're not smarter than other teams. It's not because we don't want to talk as much as other teams. It's because we don't want to waste our time because we're all heading toward death. So I don't want to spend eight hours interviewing a manager when I can make a decision. Now you're going to argue and I'm going to laugh with you. You should have taken eight hours because you always fired every manager you hired, which means you were never good at interviewing. And I'm going to say you're not right. We were always good at interviewing. We kept getting better because we did it so much. And the reason each manager got fired are things that you will hear throughout the year and dare I say years of nothing personal because each story is better than the last. But one of our managerial firings is a candidate right now for the job in Philadelphia and for the job in New York. We're talking about Joe Girardi. Let's talk about good, good old Joe and what he's doing. Joe Girardi, famous for being the Yankee catcher, winning the World Series, getting his first managerial shot with the Florida Marlins in 2006 with a payroll of about $15 million. That was the team. As you recall, we had a big payroll in 2005. You may not recall, we had Carlos Delgado, Al Leiter, Josh Beckett. We were trying to repeat as 03 World Series champions. We signed a big free agent. We were supposed to have a good team under Jack McKeon, and it just did not work out. So Jack was done in 2005. We traded away the whole team, brought in a bunch of young players, including Hanley Ramirez with a Dan Ugla was a rule five pick. We had a rotation of Ricky Nolasco and Scott Olson, Josh Johnson, Annabelle Sanchez, who threw a no hitter that year. So we bring in Joe Girardi. Let me tell you about the hiring of Joe Girardi and why I hope that he has changed since the winter of 2005. We got a call from our owner, and this is absolutely the owner's prerogative. I have no issue with it at all. We're hiring Joe Girardi. Okay, tells me, tells the GM at the time, whose name was Larry Beinfest, that that's how it's gonna be. And I'm totally fine with that. I don't agree with it, but that's not my job. My job is to support the owner when he makes a decision. So Girardi comes in, and we are pretending to interview him. 
and it's a complete pretend because I know that we have to hire him. But I want to get to know him, and I want to see whether we can work with Joe Girardi. As it turns out, Joe Girardi comes with his agent and comes with a list of demands like the Ten Commandments. He needs certain coaches hired. He needs what the salary of those coaches will be, what the term of those coaches' contracts will be. He had his son with him, who was a little son at the time, for the opening press conference. He was basically impossible to deal with in every way. As an example, he had no feeling as to what the rules of baseball were. He's a player. I don't expect him to, but I would have expected him to be mature enough and old enough to at least understand to have a relationship with the team president and the team GM. Granted, he came into the interview knowing that he was getting hired. But once he got hired, he wanted to know why we weren't hiring his coaches fast enough. Well, Bobby Meacham at the time was working for the Colorado Rockies. You have to get permission to speak to Colorado. He had been tampered with. He knew he was coming to the Marlins. He knew exactly how much money he was going to make. But the way it works in baseball is after the tampering, you have to get permission from the other team. Everyone knows that there's been tampering, but there still has to be a document signed that you have permission to speak to Bobby Meacham. Meanwhile, Joe Girardi is yelling, hey, why don't we have Meacham yet? He has left the building after his press conference. He calls from the field where he's having a catch with his son while we're up there working, yelling at us that we're not doing our jobs. I was ready to fire Joe Girardi the first day of the press conference. I didn't want to wait. Lo and behold, he ends up being the manager, is intolerable for the entire year. He had his demands on what he wanted. He actually said to us, and this is why he better have changed, he wanted full say and only say over the 25-man roster. Um, Hey, Joe, even back in 2006, before we were heavy into analytics and before we were heavy into telling managers what to do, um, that's not your job. We're going to give you 25 guys and we'll tell you how to play them. Joe did not want to hear any of that. He demanded full authority over the 25-man roster. We called up the owner, said, I don't know how we're going to work with him. To make a long story slightly shorter, because I'm getting bored of Joe Girardi talk myself, uh, we fired him twice. Once during the year, it didn't stick. And then after the year, it did stick. And we fired him and had Freddie Gonzalez ready to go. We announced the firing, same press conference. It was awesome. And you didn't have to decode it because we said it. We're firing Joe Girardi today. We're here to announce it. Who's going to be your next manager, we're asked by the media. The curtain opens, and out from behind the Wizard of Oz curtain comes Freddie Gonzalez strolling in as the new manager of the Marlins in 2007. Spectacular. <laughs> Loved it. Uh, the reason why we play sports and why we go through all the aggravation we go through and why we read all the comments on our social feeds and why we worry about what people think of us even though we say we don't, and why we say that we don't pay attention to anything that's said below us or above us, which we do. The reason we say we don't read articles, and we do, is that we wanna get rings. We wanna win the World Series. We don't wanna just make the playoffs. We wanna win championships. That's the legacy. You're in it for the ring. All of these team presidents and owners, hey, we just wanna make the playoffs. Just so you know, they're not telling the truth to you. It's for the ring. But once you win the ring, you got to design it and then figure out the rules for it. And that's what Toronto just did today. The Toronto Raptors unveiled last night in their defense with 
Kawhi Leonard in Los Angeles, of course. But there were enough current players there. The Raptors ring, and they claimed it's the biggest ring in championship history. That always offends me. I want the Marlins ring to be the biggest ring. I wanted the Marlins ring to have the most diamonds, to be the most gaudy. People thought they'd be insulting me when they said, you know your ring is gaudy? Of course it is. That's the whole point of it. It's a championship World Series ring or a Super Bowl ring. It's not meant to be subtle. It's meant to attract attention. It's meant for people to see it and touch it and feel it and wear it and take photos of it. That's the point. You want to one-up the team from, from the year before. You don't want, I remember that when the Miami Heat won the championship, we were waiting for the ring to be designed and we looked at the ring at LeBron's ring. He came to a game, maybe it was Dwayne Wade, I can't remember who and that's not name dropping. Those are just the only Heat guys who came to games. Or Chris Bosh, sorry. We got all three to come to Marlins games. It's amazing what free seats do to athletes who make millions of dollars. Staggering, isn't it? So that Heat Championship ring was really long. It was about an inch and a half long it really barely fit on my index finger. Um, my ring goes above the knuckle, which is not normal. It's supposed to be below the knuckle, but I have small fingers. But when you think about the Raptors ring, they did an entire press release about the diamonds. It's all Canadian diamonds. It has a 1.25 carat diamond, which is the biggest diamond of any ring in history. They got us. They did it. Compliments. My question to you, Toronto, how are your ring rules? What's a ring rule? These are real. I spent with Larry Beinfest, the GM at the time, three days of actual work coming up with approximately a 100 rules of who gets what ring. Now, what does that mean? Not everyone gets an A ring. An A ring is the all-diamond ring. The B ring is slightly fewer diamonds, so no diamonds on the Marlins logo. The C ring has even fewer diamonds, and frankly, I think they're cubic zirconium. And then there is no ring at all. So their employees, we would give rings, there'd be rules, and every player and every employee would fit into a category. And so the reason it took so long is you have to be consistent. So there were some players who did not get an A ring. Oh God, my favorite, my favorite part of baseball. So when we run the Marlins, uh, I was always, I don't want to say I was strict. I want to say I was consistent. And what I enjoyed about running the team is that I had the freedom to do things that our owner was not very concerned with. I couldn't design the ring. He wanted to do that. I didn't design logos or colors. He wanted to do that, and he was good at it. Great strength, great eye. But when it came to rules, and when it came, other than hair on the face for players, which was always up to our owner, when it came to rules, when it came to the front office and sales and marketing and finance and hirings and firings, he really gave me the ability over 18 years to run the team. <clears throat> so I had all of these rules for rings and our owner, Jeffrey Laurie, was fine with it. We would have grievances with players. What am I talking about? When we would take a hard line toward a player and they wouldn't be happy about it. So for example, when a player is hurt, but you don't believe they're hurt and you send them to the minor leagues, you get a grievance because the player wants to get major league time. Major league time is how the players make money. Grievances are only about money. I don't take kindly to anyone filing a grievance with me about money because I want to win those, even against players who I like. If it's a player I don't care for, I'm not more motivated 
It's not personal to me. It's just business. I want to win every single. It's like when you play the card game of war, even against your children, you want to win. So the rings are given out. Players get A rings or B rings. It depended on how long you were with the team. We had a pitcher. He was a relief pitcher. If you're listening to this podcast, there is a 99% chance that you've never heard of this player. His name was Toby Borland. He was a tall, lanky pitcher who pitched for about, let's say, 10 days in 2003. This is yet another opportunity where I'd have someone in my ear say, no, David, Toby Borland in 2003 had 15 games. Either way, it doesn't matter. What matters is he didn't get an A ring. What happened next is too unbelievable to be true, but it's true every word of it. We got notification from Major League Baseball that the Players Union was filing a lawsuit on behalf of Toby Borland against the Marlins because he did not get an A ring. When I got served that grievance, I almost went into shock. I don't want to call it anaphylactic shock because there is no amount of adrenaline or EpiPen that could have saved me. I had gone through a ton of grievances by that time, but a grievance by a player over the type of ring was brand new to me. I'd never heard of it. I immediately called up the head of labor in Major League Baseball, and I said, as far as grievance 05-040, the way grievances are numbered, if you ever see a grievance that's publicized, it's the year, so a grievance in 05 will start with 05, and then dash 004, that means it's the fourth grievance of the year that the players' union has brought against the teams or that the teams have brought against the players' union. So let's say we're a grievance 005-020, the 20th grievance. So I call up and say, hey, um, I just got word of the Toby Borland grievance. Let me tell you something. We're going all the way. And I was, and I was told, you got to settle this. Just give him the ring. And I said, there is zero chance that Toby Borland is getting a, a ring. We have rules. He fits exactly in definition 4A of our rules. We went to hearing an actual courtroom with an actual arbitrator, with an actual court reporter, with witnesses. I had to testify, as in hands up, on the Bible. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Exhibit 1A was the rules of our ring, of our rings, the ring rules. We went through and presented our case of why Toby Borland should never have been entitled to an A ring, nor should he have allowed himself to even file a grievance for it. So, the arbitrator asked questions. How did you come up with these rules? Did you purposely make a rule against Toby Borland? I said, I could care less about Toby Borland. We made rules according to what we believed was fair for the allocation of rings. Lo and behold, in one of my favorite victories of all time, we won the grievance. But here was the decision. It was ruled that Toby Borland was not allowed to receive an A ring. Yes. But then my smile turned upside down. We had to pay Toby Borland the difference in value between the A ring and the B ring. That was the decision. Toby Borland got money 
because he got his B ring plus the cash difference between a B ring and an A ring. To me, it was a victory with just a smattering of defeat because having an A ring out there with the name Borland on it, I wanted no part of. But writing a check to that guy for the difference in value between a beautiful A ring and what's still a stunning B ring was mortifying to me. Mortifying. Toby, you better not have sold that B ring. And did you invest? I guess if you invested the money in Facebook, I'd be happy for you, but I doubt you did. That's my ring discussion. <laughs> it makes me laugh. <laughs> you know, could you, uh, can we teach, can we teach everyone here about, uh, miking up players? I don't want to read one more time or hear one more player tell me they don't want to be miked. Um, you're not, giving away the formula for new Coke. Um, you don't have the codes to set off nuclear bombs. And you're certainly not curing cancer. All we're doing is giving access to our fans who pay your salary for all intents and purposes by watching on TV, by listening on the radio, by believing they're a part of something special. We are giving fans a better viewing experience. Why is it that the New York Jets have decided that they are going to make a federal issue out of the fact that Sam Darnold got embarrassed because he said on the sideline while mic'd up, I'm seeing ghosts out there. I gave you an explanation yesterday of what it was. The story should have been over. The explanation was he thought that the Patriots in white jerseys were the ghosts. That makes sense to me. That's how you throw that many interceptions. That wasn't good enough. The Jets players had to then say, this is why we don't like being mic'd. There is no excuse. Well, the way it works is as following. NFL Films is in charge of miking. NFL Films is in charge of deciding what gets allowed for fans to hear. Now, they're not checking, as I said, for nuclear codes. They don't want two things. One, anything strategy-related that can give an unfair advantage to the other team listening to the broadcast, or two, anything that would embarrass the player or the player's family and friends. It was decided by a representative of NFL Films that Sam Darnold saying, I'm seeing ghosts, would not violate either Rules 1 or Rule 2. It's not like we're talking Fight Club. There's no serious mystery that we're trying to keep covered up. This was an interesting comment from a quarterback saying, I'm not seeing the field well. I am being outmatched. I need help. That is great insight. That is additive to the game broadcast. What's not additive is having players then fighting it. I spent so much time trying to convince players to do outside jobs to help out the broadcasters, to film a commercial, to allow themselves to be mic'd. Some of them would love it. The Cody Rosses of the world would love it. Christian Yelich used to love to be Mike because he's funny and he says some fun things and he gets it. Other players would prefer to, they're quiet, maybe they're concerned that they don't speak clearly enough. I get all that. I get language barriers. I'm sensitive to that. What I'm not sensitive to in any way is the complaining. And the complaining that is going on around the Jets is all for one reason. It's to hide the fact that they stink. It's to cover up the fact that they got embarrassed by the Patriots. The bottom line for the Jets is if anyone actually wants to mic someone on your team because you have anyone interesting enough that fans want to hear, you say yes, 
you say thank you, and you move along to the next week's game plan. I get another late night tonight, that's for sure. We got a World Series game coming up. I'm excited. How could you not be? It's another battle of aces, Justin Verlander against Steven Strasburg. The question is, what is in my mind as I'm game planning this game? And how do I feel about this if I'm each team? And I want to go one one pitcher at a time, one team at a time, one front, front office at a time. When you speak to the Washington Nationals, they wanted to get one of two games in Houston to open the World Series. They already got game one. So you'd say, we're good. We're fine. Game two is gravy. That's what you're saying to your manager and to your players? No chance. You are telling them game two is a must win. We've got Strasburg on the hill. We've got the Astros on their heels. The Astros have distractions galore. We have an opportunity right now to take full control of this series because the winner of game two, when you win, go up 2-0 on the road, you're winning the World Series X amount of time. Right, Coca? Always. You're not losing the World Series winning the first two on the road. Are there exceptions? Maybe one, maybe two, but it wouldn't happen this year with a team like the Astros and the Nats. They're too closely matched that if one goes down 2 nothing like that, the Nats are going to win the series. The Astros can't win four out of five against this rotation, especially with the way the Astros are hitting. So, the Astros actually have a tremendous amount of pressure on them. They've got to win this game. For the Nationals, they are putting self-inflicted pressure on. Here's the subtle difference. When you put pressure on yourself as a player, but you know you've got a net, the pressure isn't real, and it impacts performance. When you put pressure on yourself as a player, and there is no net, that's real pressure. That causes an intensified uh, concentration. It causes you to lock in as a hitter. Every at-bat matters. There's no George Springer not running out fly balls tonight. There is no lack of focus by Justin Verlander. There is no first inning where he's given up runs the way he did against the Yankees in a possible clinching game. This isn't a clinching game for Verlander. It's a clinching game for the Nationals. That's a very big difference. My focus on tonight's game will be the first inning. When you see how Verlander comes out immediately in the top of the first inning, if he has his normal struggles, that will actually relax the Washington Nationals. It will take away that level of pressure, even though we said that's not the ultimate pressure. It still exists, but it's fake. You're forcing yourself to feel it. But if all of a sudden the Nats score, they sort of say, hey, we got Strasburg coming. We can smell a 2 nothing lead. And Strasburg comes out and he starts throwing darts, getting early contact to try to not have to go to Corbin in the bullpen, stay away from Hudson, stay away from Doolittle. If they can have Strasburg go seven innings and have a five-run lead and use the scrubs in their pen, I want to see Rodney. I love you. I love you, Rodney. I do. I remember you from 16. You're the trade that doesn't go away. Yes, I enjoyed going to the All-Star game with you as a Marlin for what you did as a Padre in San Diego. I remember you on the plane. I remember you in the clubhouse. You're a leader. But what I also remember is you're getting as many people out now as you did then. But you keep hanging on and getting paid. Hats off. I want to see a pitch tonight, Mr. Fernando Rodney. You know why? 
it means your team is up five or more runs. And when that happens, you can stay away from Corbin, Doolittle, and Hudson because you cannot keep throwing these guys out to get multi-inning saves or multi-inning holds. Their arms just aren't equipped to do it. They're going to fall apart and start blowing saves. This is a very tough game to call for me. I want to tell you the Astros are going to win. I want to tell you the Nationals are going to win. I want to tell you I can get a call right. I have not been able to figure out who's going to win. Wait to see what my pick is. It's going to come later. What I don't get to watch tonight, because I already finished it, is a, uh, we talked about this yesterday, right? My number one baseball movie, Ray Kinsella, Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner. Well, Kevin Costner's older now, and he's got a bit of a punch, and that punch is on display in a show called Yellowstone. Yellowstone, for me, is one of the great Kevin Costner vehicles I've ever seen. I had never seen him in a series, a long-form series. It takes place in Montana, and this is a show about a family who owns the most acres of land in Montana and the struggles and fights he has with the Native Americans and there is a tri- there's tribal land and there are tribal leaders and there is constant friction and fighting. And it's not the sort of intellectual barroom fighting, boardroom fighting, that's funny, that was a mistake by me and a truthful one, there is barroom fighting, not boardroom fighting. And the actors in this, you've got Luke Grimes and Kelly Riley. If you haven't heard of Luke Grimes and Kelly Riley, get to your Google right now. If you're driving, don't do it while driving. If you're listening or watching, check out Luke Grimes and Kelly Riley. Their performance in this show is to die for. Combined with Kevin Costner, once you get past the fact that he has aged, and you say, wow, he's aged gracefully, and you realize that Taylor Sheridan, who wrote and directed this entire series, is brilliant. The dialogue, the tension, the fear, the 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 fighting that takes place between ranchers and Native Americans, it makes you think a lot. It makes you think about what America was based on, and you just want to keep watching. And so I did, and so should you. <sighs> I've given you so many things to watch, and I enjoy doing that, actually, because I don't want you to be just about sports. I want everyone to know that there's a lot of amazing entertainment out there. And so when I give you shows, I understand you can't binge every one of them or see every movie that I tell you to see, but give it a try one time, and I think you'll find that if you like my taste in movies, which means you like to be entertained, or you like my taste in shows, it means that I'm not misleading you. If I'm giving you something to watch you don't like, let me know at David P. Sampson, or just tell me when you review the podcast. Tell me that you don't like it, and I'll try to get an idea, but generally I find people like my movie picks. What I don't find that people are liking as much are my regular picks, because everyone likes to make money, and the only way that people are making money right now is if they're going against what I say. I gave you the Clippers last night, so in the NBA I'm undefeated, but in baseball, I'm struggling. So you better fade me when I give you the pick of the night. So listen to this super secret, double reverse, triple Lundy pick. The Nationals will win the game tonight. Book it. Now, what you do with that information will make me smile because I can't lose right now. Either you fade me and take the Astros and you win or the Nationals win and you didn't fade me and I get to say I told you so. So by setting this up as someone who can't pick correctly, who's on this horrific streak, I can't lose. But I'm going to put my reputation on the line. I'm giving you a bonus pick in the National Basketball Association. We get a lot more games. 
Explain to me why the Boston Celtics are six-point underdogs to the Philadelphia 76ers. When you're playing at home like the Sixers are, that to me is a two- or three-point advantage if the teams are even. And that's it. I like the Celtics as a team better than the Sixers. You're going to say addition by subtraction without Butler. I'm going to say the Celtics as a team more cohesive. And the number six on opening night seems way too long for me. Bonus pick, Celtics plus six. Fade pick, Nationals. I'm going back and forth tonight watching, but certainly focusing on the World Series. The other thing I love doing every day with all of you is we keep track of our wait to sees, and we do have a wait to see for you again, and this is a good one on my main man, Joe Girardi. Joe, I'm going to assume you've changed in 2005 and that you're going to get a managerial job. I can only tell you it shouldn't be the Mets. I'm not sure that's a marriage made in heaven. It's more like made in hell. But if you go with the Phillies, here's my wait to see. It doesn't matter who you go with. Either one of those teams are not making the playoffs in 2020. Joe, you're being brought in to take a team to the playoffs, and you will not have the ability, you will not have the talent, because you will not have the proper front office working with you in order to make the playoffs in 2020. Wait to see. It's going to happen, Joe. That's everything for today. I just want to remind you as you're listening throughout our show, everything we talk about, it's just business. It's nothing personal. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.